Hello there. Um, my name is Ann Wheeler, and I am one of the deacons here at this at Redemption Arcadia Church. And you will find me on Sunday mornings, usually standing off to the side with my husband, Steve Wheeler, who's an elder, along with other elders, pastors, and deacons. And just so you know, we're there to pray with you every Sunday to encourage you, to bless you, to uh, answer any questions you might have. So I welcome you here. If you're new, we're so glad that you're with us. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about our church. We are one church in 10 congregations. That has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel throughout this state. And men and women who have felt the calling on them have gone to Redemption. I have gone to our Flagstaff, Tucson, Queen Creek, West Valley, North Valley, and here we are in Arcadia to spread the gospel. Gospel-centered, that's what we're here for. And, we're, and because of that, we're outward-focused. It causes us to put feet to those words, to be in ministry together, to serve here at the church and any outreach that we have. And Andrea Hamilton, who is our outward ministry coordinator, you can talk to her if you want to be involved, and she's at the Connect desk in the back. And then that calls us to be believing all of life is all for Jesus. You think about that. The believing part is, is we do, but it's living all of life all for Jesus. How do we do that? Well, church, coming to church every Sunday, being involved in women's, women's ministry, men's ministry, um, the Bible studies, um, and also belonging to the uh, Redemption um, Arcadia um, communities. And you can talk to Tyler Thompson about that, of being plugged into one of those um, that are in close to your area. But those are ways that we learn to encourage one another to live this life out together. And I think I have a few announcements, and that is the women's ministry will be starting September 16th. That's a Thursday in the morning and evening, and we are going to be doing Walking with God in the Desert. Come join us um, for that. And also, there is a new, brand new young ministry that's coming out, a young adult ministry that started 18 through 20s that's going to be meeting every other Monday. Please talk to Trey about that. Um, uh, I think that, and also on um, Wednesday night, we have uh, Tyler, uh, we have um, uh, Ryan Brandt. Thank you. I need help from the audience. Oh, need, Ryan Brandt, you've got to come listen to him. He is smart. He's talking about the history of the church. Um, he, we started last Wednesday, and he will be doing two other Wednesdays. Um, incredible. So come with that, and I think with that, I think that's it. So would you please stand for the reading of the God's Word? Good morning. The word for today is John 13, 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. 
So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. Now, one of the, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that we should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. That is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. If you would please get your Bibles out and turn to uh, John chapter 13. Uh, Before we uh, get into that, and we will, working our way through the Gospel of John again for the next few weeks until we take another break from it. Um, I just want to mention, I really hope that, uh, I hope that we're praying for everything that's going on in Afghanistan, um, not just for all the people there, but uh, especially for those of the Christian faith. Uh, we have, uh, we've seen reports from credible sources, credible sources, not just uh, social media hysteria, but credible sources that uh, people of faith in Afghanistan right now are going through some harrowing things. And so we might uh, just remember them in our prayers as, as uh, this whole situation uh, unfolds. <clears throat> so we are working our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, right now, we have started walking through the last night of Jesus' life on earth. This is right before his betrayal by Judas. Um, the actual betrayal. We're going to talk about the setup for that. We talked a little bit about it last week. We'll talk about it again tonight. Um, But then his execution, and then, of course, his resurrection three days later. And that is all John 13 through 17. So a big chunk of this gospel takes place over the course of maybe 24 hours, which is interesting. Like I said, we started last week with verses 1 through 20 of chapter 13, the washing of the feet. And we were introduced to the coming betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And today we get more narrated about the coming betrayal from uh, Judas. And, and for those who have been around church for a while, you're probably familiar with this narrative about Judas and the interaction uh, with Jesus. Jesus. But um, there are some things in this narrative, even if you're familiar with it, that, that feels a little bit odd you might even look at it and, and feel like it's coded in a language and a behavior that we just don't understand. And so you read some of these things, you read what's being said, you read what's happening, and you're not exactly sure why it's happening this way. We're going to unpack a lot of that and explain it. Um, two things by way of introduction for these verses that we look at today, which is 21 through 30. First of all, there is an ethos or a decorum, or a feeling of inevitability that all of this is going to take place. This passage starts with Jesus saying that he's troubled. We'll talk a little bit about what it means here. He's been troubled before. There's a particular nuance about it this time. But also, we see that Jesus says to Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. I mean, that's a statement of inevitability, of resignation, I guess you could say. And then the second Uh, thing by way of introduction is we should remember that all sin is, in fact, a form of betrayal. All sin is a form of betrayal. We're we're betraying somebody. We're betraying God. 
We're betraying others. And we're betraying ourselves when we sin. It may be all three, it may be two, it may be one, but we're betraying every time we sin, there is a betrayal that happens. And while this betrayal by Judas is arguably the worst sin recorded in the Bible, I think there's a sense in which all of us can also sympathize both with Judas and Jesus in this situation. And the reason we can sympathize with Jesus is because we've all been betrayed. And the reason we can sympathize with Judas is because we have all been betrayers. And so one of the things that we should try to remember as we go through all of Scripture, but especially these texts in John, is that there is some measure in all of us, there is some measure of both sufferer and sinner. But the reason we suffer is because of sin. Let's not forget that. Our own sin, the sin of others, the fall of humanity uh, through sin. All of this is true. So let's dive in and see what we can make of this passage. We'll reread those first five verses, 21 through 25. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and a lot of people say, and possibly out of concern that they might be the one that's going to do it, they just don't realize it yet. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that would be John, the person who's recording this gospel, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to John to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? So the first thing we need to remember, and we talked about this last week, is that Jesus is not going to be taken surprised by the betrayal of Judas. He's, he knows all about this. He knows it's coming. And, and we know since John chapter 12, at least, that Judas is really not on board with the Jesus movement. And in fact, as early as John chapter 6, we saw some dissonance with Judas and Jesus, that J Judas was probably not really on board. So we need to enter this whole paragraph, which is a long paragraph um, of, of Scripture, but we need to enter this paragraph studying it, remembering that Jesus is God, and as God, he knows everything. He's, he's sovereign. He's omniscient. And, and so he knows the plan of salvation, and so he knows that he's going to be betrayed by Judas, and that that's the only way this plan of salvation will be executed and can be executed. There has to be a betrayal that happens. So none of this is outside of the sovereignty of God. And so in verse 21, it says that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. That's not the first time we've heard or seen this for Jesus. And before, when we saw that saying that he was troubled, he was mostly troubled about the fact that his crucifixion was imminent. Now, if, you've, if you know anything about crucifixion, if you studied it, uh, it is a humiliating, shameful, and violently uh, painful way uh, to die. So nobody, not even the Messiah, would look forward to crucifixion. But here, it's more than just the cross that's bothering him because the word troubled here in the Greek means perplexed and agitated. It's, it, it, here's how one uh, author described it. It's that feeling that you and I get when we believe that something just shouldn't be like this. This isn't the way it should be. 
I imagine that we all think that from time to time, looking out at the world, maybe even looking at our relationships, looking at how things pan out, looking at the trouble that we get, find ourselves in, and we think, it just doesn't feel like this is the way it should be, but nevertheless, it is the way it is. So two things about this. Number one, Jesus in his humanity is looking at Judas, knowing he's about to betray him, and he must be thinking, this is speculation, I admit, but he must be thinking, all this time we've spent together, Judas, all the things you've seen me do, all the things that you've heard me teach, it shouldn't be like this, man. I don't get it. It shouldn't be like this. Again, it's the same way you and I often are perplexed about the sin of others, especially if that sin of others is sin directed at us. It's sin that's uh, offending us. It's perplexing and agitating, and it shouldn't be like this. And so I think here we see a common bond that Jesus in his humanity has with us in the sense that we know what it's like to be sinned against, we know what it's like to be betrayed. This is a way of knowing that Jesus actually identifies with the angst that we all have. And here's the second thing. Even though Jesus in his deity, in, in his divinity, even though he knew this was going to happen and knew that it had to happen, he's still a little fed up with Judas. Remember last week, this comes on the heels of Jesus quoting Psalm 41.9 in regard to Judas. He's quoting it in regard to Judas, but Psalm 41.9 is where King David laments about the betrayal of his son Absalom, where he writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, his son, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus is fully dialed into what's happening, but that doesn't mean he has to be happy about it. But also, I want you to see this as well. Jesus is troubled in his spirit, coming up in a couple of weeks, actually, not until after we take another break, but in, in just a few verses in your text, coming up in chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. So Jesus gets to be troubled, apparently, but not us. We need to understand what's going on here. Jesus is troubled so that you and I don't have to be. He's the one who's being ultimately betrayed for salvation, for the cost, the payment of our salvation so that we don't have to be. It's, it's very similar to the fact that Jesus went to the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to go to the cross. It's the same thing. This is, this is a magnificent thing that Jesus does for us. Now, I know we still get anxious. We still worry a little bit. I, I get all of that. We're, sure, we're, we're still unsure of things. But Jesus comes along and says, listen, for what's happening and for what has happened for you, and in fact, for your eternity, because last week we're playing an infinite game here, not a finite game. He said, you don't need to be troubled. That's really good news. By the way, if, if you're new and you haven't figured out by now, here at Redemption, we value Jesus above all else. And those are some pretty good reasons why. So then you look at verse 22, and this is the first indication we get, finally, that the disciples are starting to consider the betrayal as a real possibility. Up until that point, who would think? You know, they're this happy band, yoke of disciples of Jesus. Every, everything is going really well. But now they're beginning to realize something not right could be happening. 
here. I recently finished a very good, but it's very long, book about Abraham Lincoln. It's called Team of Rivals. I know a couple of you are reading that now. Um, most of us know that uh, Lincoln was assassinated just after the Civil War ended and just after he was reelected for his second term. What's really interesting is that the book, one of the things the book details is that there was also a real and significant plot to have him assassinated after he was elected, but before he was inaugurated, before he could even take office. And that the plan was that they, were, that they, they got his route from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, D.C., where he was going to go to the inauguration and the celebration. They got his train route, and at one of those stops along the way when Lincoln would speak, they were going to assassinate um, Lincoln then. Now, the threat and the plot were real. The interesting thing that the author, Goodwin, unpacks is that many of Lincoln's people didn't take the threat seriously. He's not even in office yet. I mean, how could somebody already want to assassinate him? I mean, they didn't take it seriously. But thankfully, Lincoln and his chief of security did take it seriously. And with a little extra planning, shuck and jive, maneuvering, they were able to avoid the plot. And he made it to the inauguration festivities OK. Now, later on, as things began to rage, and, and, and that rage of people, especially in the South, got a little bit closer, but also in the North, got a little bit closer to home, all of Lincoln's people started to take the threat of assassination very seriously. And there were many plots along the way uh, during his four plus years of, as president. Well, what's happening here in this dinner is that the disciples, who, again, Somebody would mention a plot in, say, John chapter 7, and they'd go, there's no way. Now they're beginning to understand the reality that Jesus is going to lose temporally. He's going to lose the finite game to the professional religious people who want him dead and to Judas, who is going to betray him. But also, a couple of them are interested in finding out exactly what's going on. You know, uh, there's a sense in which all of us are like this. You know something bad is happening, and you're like, I don't care about the details. It's bad. It's going to be bad, and I'll just live with it being bad. But then there are times when you know something bad is happening, and now we're like, I want all the details. I want to know exactly what's happening, who's involved, why, what the strategy is, and everything. Well, there, there's at least one of them that wanted to know what's really going on. So understand, first of all, the disciples had no idea who it was. I mean, they, they didn't... Uh, You'd think that everybody would immediately look at Judas, but they're not. Judas was the trusted treasurer of this little yoke of disciples. He, he handled all the money, which, of course, was a problem, too. And so what this speaks to, now think about this, because there's application here for us as well. This speaks to Judas's ability to hide his sin, his wickedness, and his true feelings and his thoughts from everybody else. Now, this speaks to the human ability that we all have, or that we suppose that we all have, to be able to hide our sin, to hide our true intentions, to hide our secret agendas, to hide our thought process from others. We can hide that from our friends, from our spouses, and from our coworkers. But remember, no matter how adept we might be at hiding it from others, we can never hide this stuff from God. He knows it all. He knows before you even think it. We, we need to remember that. And second of all, Peter, who's not even close to Jesus, 
Okay, in fact, there's, we have a painting of, you know, the famous, okay. A lot of scholars say that's really not what it looked like. <laughs> okay, um, first of all, they're not reclining at the table, they were laying down at the table. It it's a weird thing, I could go into it, but I don't have five minutes to spare to go into all the laying down and eating when you're laying down. It's, like, they were all yoga experts. Anyway, the other thing is that a lot of scholars say they don't think there was just one table. There were, there were people at other tables. So what they're saying is that what happened was Peter was maybe even sitting at a different table than where Jesus and John were sitting, which must have really irked him. But nevertheless, he was, like, sitting far enough away. And, and so he motioned. And if you, again, if you look in, um, and, and study the Greek a little bit, you know that word that he uses to get John's attention was, was kind of a thing that a lot of guys are adept at doing. We can communicate with just, you know, motions and gestures and grunts. We're really good at that. And he does that with John. And John interpreted it as, I need to ask Jesus what's going on. So he nods at him. He throws his hand up at him, whatever it is. But he knows, I, I, I need to ask. Peter's saying, you're sitting next to him. Come on, get the inside information. So what's next? Look at 26 through 29. And Jesus answered, it is to he, and by the way, understand, he's just speaking at this point to John. Jesus answered, it is, to, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus said to him, what, you're, what you are going to do, do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that it was because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So this whole thing is going on, and John knows exactly what's going on, but Jesus communicates it in a way to John and to Judas so that nobody else understands what's happening. So first of all, what's this whole bread dipped and handing it? What does all that mean? Why did he dip the bread and hand it to, to Judas? Well, Jesus was actually being a little bit crafty here, a little bit shrewd, a little coy. He was going to answer John's question, but he did not want the distraction of everyone else at the table knowing it. There might have been an uproar if he just had announced what was happening. And so he did this bread, dip, and serve thing. In their culture, in first century Mediterranean culture, this little bread dipped and handing it to somebody was a mark of courtesy and esteem by the host for a guest. And Jesus, being the host, was doing this as a mark of courtesy and esteem to Judas, the guy who's going to betray him. So years ago... Jackie and I used to travel to Korea uh, for business, and we spent a lot of time in, in Seoul, Korea. I, I haven't been there in years, but I mean, what a great city it was then. I'm, I imagine it's still a great city, an amazing city. Not the greatest place to go out for a run, but it was still a wonderful city. And, and um, probably the most gracious and esteeming people I've ever met. I mean, they were hosts like nobody's ever hosted anybody ever before. I mean, they're just magnificent. And one of the things that we learned quickly about their culture was that if you're out to dinner with them, they always wanted to take you out to dinner. If you're out to dinner with them, whatever it is that you were drinking, whether it was a glass of water or a cup of tea, and if it needed to be refilled, you would never refill it yourself. The host of the dinner was in charge of that. And they would always grab the pitcher or whatever it is, and they would walk over, they would get up and walk over to where you were sitting, and they would, 
they would hold their hand like this. Not that they were weak, but it was, a, it was a gesture of esteem and honor. And they would pour the refill for you as if to say, you are honored and esteemed and we are glad to have you as our guest. Well, this is what Jesus is doing with Judas, the guy who's going to betray him. And he wants John to know that he knows, but he doesn't want the others to know. He doesn't want the evening derailed. If, if this had been announced, the whole evening would have been derailed. We might not have chapters 14 through 17, which is some of the most important teaching Jesus has ever done. Okay, And, and in fact, think about Peter. Peter's very impetuous. Peter acts and then thinks about it six or eight weeks later. He's, you know, if Peter had found out, he might have just killed Judas. <laughs> that would have derailed the evening. I don't know if you've ever been to a dinner party where somebody kills somebody else. That is a problem, okay? He might have done that. I mean, I know Peter being impetuous, who would have thunk it? But Jesus, Jesus did it the way he wanted to. And when Judas accepted the bread, looking in the eye and accepting the gift, this was the point of no return for Judas. Satan now had entered him and completely owned him. So think about if you've ever read in the New Testament the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 1. Judas was turned over at this moment to his lustful desires for reward money, for fame, and for approval from other human beings. That handing of the bread, in a sense, was Jesus, as Paul says in the last half of Romans 1, that was Jesus turning Judas over to his own desires. All right, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to let you have your way. And that's essentially what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1 as well. Okay, at some point, I'm just going to let you have what you want. You don't want a life with God? Fine. Here you go. I'm turning you over. And the irony, of course, is that Judas's heartfelt, his own truth desires were what ultimately destroyed him. Our hearts are wicked and deceptive above all other things. Who can understand our hearts? We need to remember those desires can destroy us too. So here's how New Testament scholar Merrill Tenney writes. When we yield to our selfish imp impulses, we fully open the way for satanic control in our lives. So consider, when, when God turns us over to our selfish impulses and desires, we actually incur a wrath of our own making. We incur a wrath of our own making, a sort of hell on earth. And that's actually one of the arguments that Paul is making in the second half of Romans chapter 1, is that when you give in to this stuff and God turns you over, you're going to experience a wrath that is of your own making and it's going to feel like hell on earth. It's a little glimpse of what it's going to be like in eternity. Something else we need to understand about this, just because Satan is constantly involved in goading us, it doesn't in any way relieve us of our responsibility for our sin. And that's why we need Jesus and the sacrifice he gave us on the cross. That's why we need Jesus. Satan is real. Spiritual warfare is real. So, having said that, and knowing from experience... Uh, for the last 21 years as a pastor, and especially even at Arcadia, how troublesome this idea of Satan being real and spiritual warfare being real. I'm going to stop right here, and we're going to go to Ephesians 6, and we're going to read...
part of Ephesians 6. You can turn there if you want. It's also going to be on um, the screen. But this is Paul talking about the reality of Satan and spiritual warfare. I mentioned this one time when we were back over in the uh, old property more than five years ago. I mentioned this in the midst of uh, something that was troubling, uh, that was happening during a service. I mentioned that Satan is real, spiritual warfare is real. You should read uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And honestly, um, you know, I get a lot of emails uh, complaining about things and saying things that I've said are wrong. I, I got enough emails about that that I remember it even today, people saying, you're, you're not serious. Are you, you really believe in this Satan and spiritual warfare thing? Okay, here you go. Yeah, I, I don't assume this is true for everybody in here, but for those of you who believe in Jesus, you say that Jesus is raised from the dead... That means you believe this word. That means you believe that Satan is real and that there's real spiritual warfare. There's no other way. There's no way to wiggle out of this. And Paul gives us excellent counsel about this and what's going on. So here it is, starting in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord. (laughs) He doesn't say... Go to the gym and work out, because that'll really scare Satan, okay? He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, put on the whole armor of God. The, The sense of the Greek there is not put it on when there's a threat that comes, and then when the threat is over, take it off. That's not what he's saying. The sense of the Greek is put on the armor and keep putting it on continuously forever and ever and ever. You have to keep putting on the armor of God. Never take it off. Constantly be be applying the armor of God to you all the time because of Satan's schemes, because of his agenda, because of his strategy. Put on the armor of God, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, so there's, there's forces of evil in the heavenly places. The, the, again, the Greek there translated heavenly places literally means the sphere of spiritual activities. So Paul is talking about how this war is not happening. Believe it or not, this war is not happening between Republicans and Democrats. It just feels like it. Okay? This war is happening somewhere else. It's in the spiritual realm. And and what Paul's saying is you got to be with Jesus if you want to be with the winners. (laughs) And it may not feel like you're winning all the time because Satan has all kinds of power in this realm right now. We have to understand that. And that's why you have to be continuously, thoroughly putting on the armor of God at all times. Okay? Therefore, he says in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the, in the, in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of, of truth and having the, on 
put on the breastplate of righteousness. Notice the progression here. Truth leads to righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, which comes with the gospel. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, the Bible. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And understand, this spiritual... I've mentioned this before, but I want to hit us again. This, this spiritual warfare that we're involved in is not a special effects thing. It's not like you get up and you see it coming at you with lightning bolts and fire and all that stuff. And the reason is because Satan would know that you would look at that and go, that's a problem, I'm going to go do something else, okay? Satan has a scheme. He has a plan. He's devious. He likes to sidle up next to you and whisper things in your ear and get you thinking and get you doubting and get you asking questions. That's how genuine spiritual warfare takes place. Spiritual warfare is, again, not about Hollywood special effects, but it's subtle. It's almost passive. You might even feel like it's comfortable. That's the way Satan wants it. Full frontal attacks are not his thing. Most of the time we have no idea that we're involved in spiritual warfare because Satan knows that if we knew, we might do something about it. That's why Paul says we have to be ready all the time. And know this, our struggle is against Satan and our struggles against sin, those things are indistinguishable. If you're struggling against sin, you're struggling against Satan. If you're struggling against Satan, you're struggling against sin. Now, I don't do that very often in a sermon to kind of take a little sidetrack and chase down this rabbit, but that's a really important rabbit. And I think we caught him and cooked him, amen? <laughs> Sorry for those of you that like vegetables. Okay, so back to John chapter 13. Ju Jesus says to Judas, what you're going to do, just do it quickly. So Jesus is saying, all right, let's get on with this. No more charade, no more games. Let's just get the inevitable going. You've all been there before, right? I sure have. You know something horrible is coming. There's nothing you can do to stop it. So now you're just, you've resigned yourself. It's inevitable, and you're like, let's just get this thing over with. You know, I'll feel bad for a while, and then maybe I can get on with my life in a different state or something. I don't know, whatever it is. Let's just get this over with. Um, there's a, a younger, they're all younger than me, there's a younger pastor at another Redemption congregation. He's been with Redemption maybe five years. Smart, smart guy. Uh, really good guy. Married. I guess he's married maybe six years. He has a little story about this. He, he, he said that, you know, he and his eventual wife had started dating and they were getting very serious. And this woman that he was dating, all of, his, uh, all of her uh, Christian girlfriends did not like this guy, thought he was wrong for her, okay? And so they didn't like the track that this was going and believed that she was oblivious to the fact that our pastor friend was 
awful. That's why we hired him. Anyway, um, so they decided to do an intervention. This is how serious they thought it was. So all her friends got together and invited her over. She didn't know anything about it, and they intervened. They told, him, told her all about how awful this guy was. You're ruining your life. You got to break up with this guy. And she says, all right, I think you're right. She agreed. She needs to break up with him. Well, our pastor friend apparently had some spies out there, so he knew this was going on. So he knew in advance. So she calls later that night and says, hey, I'm going to come by the house. I need to talk to you about something. He knew exactly what it was about. So he goes out on his front porch, sits on his front porch, waits for her to drive up. As soon as she drives up, she pulls up. She's getting out of her car. He walks right down to her, doesn't greet her or anything. He just says, what you came here to do, do it quickly. And she said, all right, we're done. Now, you're like, but wait, they got married. Yes, here you go. I love this part. He was playing the long game. He was, if you were here last week, you'll know what I mean. If you weren't, listen to or watch the sermon. He was playing the infinite game. He understood this setback here wasn't the demise necessarily of their relationship. And three months later, he was back with her. And then they got married, and I think they still are married, yes. So, I know they are. Jesus looks at Judas and says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Because Jesus, as we talked about last week, was playing a completely different game than Judas. And he knew, Jesus knew, I need to lose in this finite game where Judas is going to think he's won, because Judas is playing by a different set of rules that don't matter in the end. So he gave in because he knew that three days later he was going to show that he's playing the infinite game and that he was going to win that game. I, I like the correlation between three months later our pastor friend was back together with his wife-to-be and three days later Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But you see that? Jesus knows. He knows. He says, look, I don't like this any more than anybody else would, but this has to happen. For the salvation of those who would believe, for God's people to believe and be saved. That's awesome. That last verse, verse 30 in John 13, last verse we're going to look at today anyway. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. What a verse. It's just one verse, but what a verse. Judas takes the bread, Satan takes control, and Judas is on his way to the Sanhedrin to rat out Jesus. And John adds at the end, and it was night. How many times so far in this study of the Gospel of John have we looked at the contrast between light and day and darkness and night? Starting in John chapter 1, verse 5, there's this constant theme of light and darkness, day and night, all through here. The light and the day is a metaphor for the ministry of Jesus, for being with Jesus, for walking in the wisdom of God, for walking with God, while darkness and night are metaphorical for being without Jesus. Jesus is gone. You're walking in the foolishness of humanity, not the wisdom of God. You're walking without God. In Luke's gospel, at this point, he describes it this way. This was the power of darkness. 
that had taken Judas. So there's that spiritual warfare reality again. Tom Wright has written, Notice how people creaks into the cracks just as love is about to go to the limit. It's true. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to put on the armor of God. So this is it. Everything's in motion. Jesus has just a few more hours to prepare his disciples to do some final discipling, to do some final teaching, which is incredible, to pray for them in John chapter 17, and then get them ready. Here you go. Jesus is getting them ready for him to go to the cross. That's what he's going to do in these next several chapters. All good things come to an end with one exception, and that's the salvation of Jesus, because that's the infinite game. No matter how good we have it in this world, if we're without Jesus, that goodness is going to end, and it's not going to end well. Maybe you've heard this said before. I think it's helpful. Uh, Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, used to say it quite often. For the believer in Jesus, this world is the closest to hell that they will ever get. And for the one who does not believe in Jesus, this world is the closest to heaven that they will ever get. I, I really hope and pray that everyone in this room today is as close to hell as they will ever get and that we're all looking forward to that day that Jesus comes again and we get to be with him in eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, all of us have, have suffered the offense of betrayal. And what we see here is that the ultimate betrayal, the ultimate offense, was visited on the one who could take it for us and turn it into redemption and turn it into salvation. God, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that Jesus does all of this. He does the work. He does the sacrifice. He pays the ransom so that we have nothing left to do but just believe. So I pray that we would believe. And I pray that our belief would lead us to live a life that's worthy of our calling in the gospel, as Paul says throughout his letters. So help us to do that, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the band is coming. We're going to do a couple more songs. At least uh, one of them is going to be while we come to the Lord's table, take communion. Again, I like to... I, I, I know that we live... <clears throat> in a culture and in a world and an ethos of haste and moving quickly and let's get on with this. But this is a moment again, I just I want us to slow down and remember what Jesus has done for us. He went to the cross, his body was broken, which is the bread, the element of the bread or the wafer in communion. And on the cross, he poured out his blood for us. And that's represented by the juice that's in the communion kits. And that blood is the blood of the new covenant. The covenant that says that he's done it all for us. That's how much he loves us. And in that cross and resurrection, we see forgiveness of our sin, redemption, and eternal life. We are new creations when we come to Jesus. And so when we come to the table... It's something we do every week, but it shouldn't be routine. 
It should be a, a sober confession of our need for Jesus, but it should also be a glorious and joyous celebration that we have Jesus, that we have our salvation in him. That there was nothing we could do, but he did it all for us. So as we come and get our kits and go back to our table and we, we eat the bread, we drink the juice, remember that this is what Jesus is doing and remember this and proclaim it until he comes again. So let's do that now. And when you're done with all of that, if you can and you feel led to, you can stand and join in with the singing of these last two songs.
debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the sun sets free, oh, is free. As our benediction as we make our way out this week. You know, in the Gospel of John, he wrote a passage in there telling us the purpose for writing the Gospel of John. This is what it says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Imagine that for a second. But these are written, here's why, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So our benediction is to go from here, church, and have life in the name of Jesus this week. Go live all of life, all for him. We'll see you next Sunday.